Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. You know, the, the ideal I think that we all have is wouldn't it be cool if we could take our camera through our life and film all kinds of cool things that we were interested in? and learn about those things and teach other people about those things through our work. And maybe there's a way we can figure out how we can actually feed ourselves and have a family and, and you know, go to places and maybe that, maybe that could work. And so I've been trying to get that to work and I have to a degree. And so it's, it's like I say to other people, it's, you may have to go out and get a, a job somewhere, a real job, part time to support your documentary film or your family or whatever, but that's okay. It's, it's keeping your eye on the prize, you know, so if you have to work nights to, to, so you can do something else during the day and do your filming during the day, then, then do it. It'll take you a little longer, but you'll, you'll get it done. You won't end up hanging out at Starbucks whining about how the world doesn't understand you. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 67. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Back in 2006, I found myself backpacking through much of South and Southeast Asia. It was about a six-month tour through countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, and Nepal. For good measure, we even stepped into Myanmar for a whole 30 minutes on a visa run in order to spend some more time in Thailand. Now, I had previously been to both Thailand and Cambodia on multiple occasions, and I knew much of the lay of the land in both of those countries fairly well, certainly in Cambodia where I'd previously spent five months working on a documentary. But it was my first time in countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, and Nepal. Often when I travel like this, I have a camera or cameras with me. At the time, I was traveling pretty light, so only had my DSLR with a couple of lenses. So I wasn't shooting any video, but I was taking a ton of pictures. To this day, some of the best stills that I've ever shot were from that time period. Another thing to note is that when I travel... I tend to hang out in the less touristy areas whenever I can. I try and travel to the places where most other Westerners are not traveling. And I try and immerse myself in culture and language so that I may have at least a modicum of context for the things that I'll see, the things that I'll experience, or take photographs of. I want to be able to at least say hello and thank you to the people that I meet. And another thing I do is I tend to think and experience things in cinematic terms. Maybe that sounds a little weird to you. Actually, I'll bet it doesn't. We're all doc filmmakers, right? We're pretty much wired this way. That is, we are wired to think about story or drama or figuring out the world around us through our filmmaking. I know that I certainly am. And of the countries that I mentioned, nowhere else did I experience this more than when I first traveled to Nepal. 
Nepal was unlike any of the other Southeast Asian countries that I'd either traveled to or filmed in. The Nepalese, they didn't look like other Southeast Asians. The foods were entirely different. The way in which they said English words was totally unique. There was nothing remotely similar in how they dressed. At least in countries like Indonesia, Cambodia, or Thailand, there was some crossover, whether it was in the cuisine or, or some words or in the way that they dressed. But not in Nepal. Not at all. And when I went on a 15-day trek through the Himalayas, I'd experience even more vast differences there in the country itself, in, in geography, in culture, in the weather. I'd experience this, these, these drastic changes on a daily basis when I was on this trek. And I tried, often in vain, to capture much of it as I could with my stills camera. Now, any of you dock lifers who have done any kind of substantial hiking or trekking, you know that after a while, especially during longer stretches, it's easy to get into a pretty meditative or zen kind of state. And when trekking in Nepal, this was a constant for me. I must have solved the world's problems numerous times, come up with a thousand different great film ideas, had imaginary conversations with world leaders, all during my great walk through the northern part of the country of Nepal. Of course, for anyone who's been listening to this program for any length of time, I don't have to tell you that it was during this time that I that I first came up with the seeds that would become Journey to Kathmandu, a film that at first glimpse was about goats making an annual trek from their farmland lives in Tibet to their sacrificial deaths in Kathmandu during the height of, of the all-important Nepalese holiday known as Dosai. And while yes, there would end up being plenty of goats and goat herders and the Ariel family whom we get to experience the festival with, the film in many ways, even if not overtly so, it was about my perceptions and my personal, if not even sacred, journey through this Nepalese culture. During a stop for some tea, I meet Prem Ariel, the proprietor of a local tea shop. I find his smile inviting and infectious. Over the course of Dasai, I would get to know his family quite well. And that's what today's episode of The Documentary Life is very much about. It's about documentary film and how it's often used to better understand the world in which we inhabit. How documentary film, it often allows us to become explorers and can serve to be a connection to ourselves and to the world around us. And we doc filmmakers, we often do this kind of sacred exploration and connection through the making of what is known as the personal documentary, or in the case of today's guest, Michael Weesey's approach, to what he calls the spiritual documentary. So when we come back from a quick word from our sponsor, I'm going to begin today's episode by giving you five tips for making the personal documentary. And after that, we're going to have a rather sacred conversation with a man who has found a way to lead his doc life very much on his own terms. A man who is not only an accomplished documentary film director and producer, but who is responsible for the biggest publishing company of filmmaking books in the world with his company, Michael Weesey Productions. And he has been doing much of this and leading and living his doc life since being diagnosed in 2007 with Parkinson's. Michael's extraordinary story is something that will resonate with you for a long time. That and more coming up next on The Documentary Life. When I first started making documentary films, I was often making them entirely on my own dime. 
It wasn't that it was a conscious decision on my part. I just really wanted to get out and start making my film. Does this sound familiar to you? When you have a great idea for a doc and the opportunity to get out there and start shooting, you don't want to let something like money get in the way of that. And for a while, it may not. But unfortunately, unless you have unlimited resources, eventually it will. Not having money for your doc film will slow you down, reduce your crew size, your film production values and aesthetics, even the story you're able to tell. And that's not even accounting for the additional stress, frustration, and your inability to work on the project full time. We don't accept that for ourselves anymore, and we don't want you to accept it either. Money is out there for every documentary film, and that includes yours. Every day, money is donated or awarded to documentary films. Why not yours? The trick is in knowing where to look for it and how to secure it for your film. In the Documentary Academy, we have the most comprehensive funding module that you will find anywhere in any course on fundraising for your documentary film. We cover the A to Z on raising funds for your film so you will never again be left wondering where the money's coming from. Enroll in the Academy today by going to the documentarylife.com slash academy and start your journey to raising 10, 25, or even $100,000 for your documentary film. Let's get right into five tips for making the personal documentary. And as always, these are in no particular order of importance, nor are they the top five tips or anything like that. They're just, they're just five suggestions that I'd like to supply you with as you venture forth with the making of your personal doc. One, have a way to film yourself. This is kind of an obvious and very practical one. You have to have a way to film yourself or at the very least have someone filming you. But really, even if you have someone filming you, you're still going to need a way to film yourself at some point because the notion that someone's going to be with you filming you 24-7, it's a pretty fantastic and I might add pretty frightening thought. Because you're doing a personal doc, you're often going to want to have the ability to share some immediate thoughts to camera or film yourself or something that has happened on the fly. Because of this, you must have easy and quick access to a camera at all times. Now, these days, that's pretty easy since most of us have mobile phones with some pretty great video capabilities. That being said, just be sure that's the look that you're going to want for these spontaneous or journal-esque type moments. You should think through prior to beginning production on the look and feel right of the film and what camera or cameras will be employed throughout and the reasons for employing them. You may decide to shoot truly personal moments with your phone, or if you're an athlete, perhaps your moments where you're practicing your sport with an action camera like a GoPro, or perhaps you want, you want footage that isn't directly on you to be shot in an obviously different style and look. Figure this all out beforehand if possible, and then move forward with your plan. But, but yes, do make sure to ha that you always have quick access to some video recording device. Two, decide how personal you're willing to be. Since you're doing a documentary that's going to be about you and your life, it's probably pretty important to decide early on how personal you want to be. How much of your life are you willing to expose to the outside world? Remember, once you make this film and get it out into the world, nowadays it's practically impossible to pull back from that. So you need to be honest with yourself about what you're willing to share with the world, your family, your friends, your kids, your grandkids, because when you make your film, it's pretty forever, and that shouldn't be taken lightly. 
As a side note here, remember that any of your family and friends who might end up in your film will also have to live with the image that is presented of them. They too will be affected by how they're portrayed. You might remember a couple of months back we had on doc filmmakers Leo Warshawski and Todd Soliday, and there was one particularly sensitive and emotional moment when they were interviewing Leah's father, Maury, and they had to make a very conscious choice on whether or not to include some very raw and emotional moments. And they, as well as Maury, they'll have to live with that choice now for the rest of their lives. Or another example that I can think of, you might remember we had on IDA Career Achievement Award winner Lourdes Portillo on the program. And, and, and Lourdes is a woman who is well acquainted with the personal documentary. And she even said on the episode how some of her family have not spoken with her since she did her film uh, over 30 years ago. This, of course, it's not to scare you, actually... Actually, maybe it is, but but the point is just to be very conscious of how you might be willing to present yourself on camera, as well as others who may be in your film, that there can be consequences depending on how you might portray yourself and or others in your film. Three is choose a topic that you're passionate about. Look, if you're doing a personal documentary, you might as well be passionate about what you're doing and the things that you're saying in your documentary. If not, you could end up making a pretty boring video diary of events of your life. And trust me, no one really wants to see that. Maybe I shouldn't speak for others, but I don't want to see that. I don't want to invest a couple hours of my time to watch you going to the grocery store or cutting your fingernails or, or having boring conversations with your friends. Actually, that may not be entirely true now that I think of it. I thoroughly enjoyed seeing that in um, in, in, in the Maisel's Brothers' Grey Gardens. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's great. But seriously, your, your your personal documentary will most likely contain some sort of interesting story element anyway. Otherwise, you might not you wouldn't necessarily have a need to make the film in the first place, right? You might be someone who is actively engaged in helping refugees acclimate to your town. You might have discovered a new and unique way to sail around the world on a boat made of, of balsa wood. Um, you might be a teacher at a particularly diverse school on the border with, with Mexico here in the U.S. You get what I'm saying here. Th there has to be something that you deeply care about, not just because the viewer needs a good reason to invest their time you know, watching your film, but also because you yourself, you're going to be investing an extraordinary amount of time making your film. You'll want to have something to say, whether it be during pieces directly to camera or through the filming of events taking place or, or, or whatever. You can have something to say literally or with the footage that you are shooting. Number four, can you be comfortable in front of the camera? This may seem rather obvious initially, but it's actually something that you do really need to consider. Can you not only be comfortable in front of the camera, but do you think that others will want to see you? And I don't mean this in any vain sort of sense. I don't mean, are you attractive? Are you a super witty person or anything like that? I just mean when the camera's on, which it will be a lot of the time, are you able to speak and act in a way that's pretty natural? Or are you in fact intimidated by the camera and are unable to speak what's on your mind? Or are you often too aware of the camera or, you know, just very self-conscious of it? Now, it may also be that you just need some time with the camera. Most subjects of docs, I would wager, they have a bit of time that's necessary for them to get used to a camera being around, let alone a crew of some size. That's perfectly natural and understandable. But after a while, the camera kind of seems to seems to fade from the scene. You, you do get used to it. 
But if you're never really able to get used to it, or you're always apprehensive or shy about it, well, then you might want to reconsider having a film about yourself or your life made, because it's just going to make you anxious all the time. And if you think that you're anxious at all, that's most certainly going to translate on camera as such. So, so do find out if you're actually going to be comfortable being in front of the camera. And last but not least is number five, which is don't over explain. So one quick way to either bore or turn off an audience member from watching your film is if you constantly over explain things. Never beat people over the heads with your ideas or your thoughts or suggestions. Let people come to their own conclusions. That's part of why we read a story or watch a film, is to be able to take the information and then form our own opinions. Now, obviously, if you're making a, a Michael Moore type doc, you're, you're perhaps trying to shape people's minds about a particular subject. And he can certainly go over the top with his presentation, although he often does this sort of thing maybe with a wink of an eye to the audience. But unless you're making this kind of a doc, you'll want to remind yourself that you want to allow your audience the opportunity to take in what you're presenting to them in a way that allows them to form their own opinions. The best way that you can do this is to show, don't tell. So allow us to see events and people without your actual voice or narration always telling us what we're seeing or how we should interpret what we're seeing. And you may need to go through and rewrite your narration if you're if you're using narration at all in your film. You, you might have to rework it a few times so as to make sure that you're not over-explaining moments. So those are five hopefully helpful tips for making your personal documentary. If you'd like to see these listed out, you can always visit the show notes for this episode, and I will have them posted there. All show notes can be found by going to the documentarylife.com website. Show notes are a great way to find loads of supplemental material to go along with these episodes. Next up, we'll speak with a man who's made a number of his own personal documentaries who has had personal screenings with the Dalai Lama himself, who founded MW Productions, the company that has published over 200 filmmaking titles worldwide. Our conversation with Michael Wiese, next up on The Documentary Life. If you like what you hear in this episode, or if you've been a listener of the Documentary Life podcast for a while, why not share with a friend? Or if you've ever been inspired in any way by a particular topic that we've discussed on the program, why not share on your Twitter or your Facebook or your Instagram? I'm betting that you know other doc filmmakers who would also benefit from listening to the Documentary Life. If so, if that is in fact the case, please share an episode or two with them. Not only will you potentially be informing and inspiring another doc filmmaker, but you're helping us get our show out into the world. And we need that. We very much, in fact, rely on that. We know and fully believe that our podcast brings value to you guys. We get emails all of the time telling us so. And while I want to encourage you to certainly keep writing us, we absolutely love reading those emails. We also want to encourage you to help us get the word out about our podcast. So, after listening to our show today, or maybe you want to hit pause now and come back to us, that's okay too. Please take a moment and share this show with someone who you think might also benefit from it. In advance, thanks for your time, Doc Lifer. It means the world to us that you faithfully listen to us each and every week, and that you would find us fit to share with someone else. 
I'm honored to have on the documentary live today, Michael Weesey. Michael is the director and producer of many a documentary films. He is also an author of a number of books, and he is the owner of the publishing company and production company, Michael Weesey Productions, who are responsible for over 200 film books worldwide, including his memoir, Onward and Upward. Michael Weesey, I am honored to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us today on the documentary live. Well, you're welcome. And I, you know, people say they're glad to be here and all of that. I'm really glad to be with you because what you're doing with documentary life, nobody else is doing. And it's an area that needs to be looked at and touched upon. And we've tried to publish to it. But, you know, being a filmmaker is is not separate from being a human being or, or from you know, incorporating your whole life in an expression through documentaries. And, and I don't think people look at the lifestyle, the why to, they look at the how to, but they don't look at the why to enough. And it's not sort of till later in life they realize, gee, I went wrong here and I went wrong there and I could have done that and, and so on. Uh, so I applaud you in, in what you put together and what you're looking at, because I think it's vitally important. And, and, and it's why I would have someone like you on the program and why I'm so excited to be talking with you today, Michael, because you very, very much exemplify this idea that we have been talking about now for, you know, well over 60 episodes over a year, well over a year and a half here on The Documentary Life. You really embody this idea of a documentary life. I, I, I have in front of me, Michael, your memoir, Onward and Upward, and, and there's there's sort of a testimonial on, on the very back cover that really <laughs> very much encapsulates for my audience um, why I would have you on the program and, and really in many ways who you are and what we'll get into today. And, and, and the testimonial is from a Ralph White, who is the co-founder and creative director of New York Open Center. And he describes you and the book as from small town America to Haight-Ashbury at its peak to the world of New York and Hollywood media, to deep spiritual exploration in the jungles of Peru and beyond. Michael has trusted his inner being and taken risks that would have daunted a lesser person. This is the tale of a gifted and resourceful person who stays true to his values, always chooses the spiritual and the compassionate, never forsakes his deepest values, and is often willing to head into the unknown. And I hope that we can uh, head into the unknown today. I, I am so, again, grateful that you would come on the program. And I'm excited to, to share a little bit uh, uh, about your journey, Michael. Uh, I think even in, in emails with you, I had mentioned I, could, I'm, I feel like I could speak with you for hours. Um, I'm only saddened by the fact that we only have a half hour here on the program. As we get started, Michael, what would be nice for us is to get a little bit of your background, um, really, by, by backing up, and, and maybe you could tell us where and when you started filmmaking, and make a picture for us what that looked like, Michael. Well, I was a teenager, and I got a job at the University of Illinois Documentary Division as a production assistant, and you know, I, I did all the production assistant kind of things. And on the weekends, they'd give me the camera and I could go out and shoot my own thing. So that's probably yeah. when I got started, and probably around 1961 or somewhere in there. And then that, that led eventually to photography school and, and film school and, and on and, and beyond. So I don't think I started with any particular, uh, I mean, it was more difficult in those days to get an image and to make films. And it was expensive because it was 16 millimeter and, uh, you know, I could put in a roll every couple of weeks, you know, for my salary. So it was uh, it was hard to get an image. You know, you had to take a light meter reading and 
it's not like today where you can get, you know, you can shoot hours of stuff. Without going through your whole background, I do know that you spent a little bit of time, interestingly enough, in my uh, in my hometown where I'm originally from. Uh, you spent some time in Rochester, New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was I was there studying photography. They wouldn't let me be a. I wanted to take fine art photography, yeah. but they had, I, when I got to the school, they booked all the places. So I ended up being a scientist for a year, and then later <laughs> to fine arts. Yeah, I, I can make emulsion for you, and I can show you how to use a densitometer. But the, the photographs that the, my class were taking were just horrendous. Just, just really, I mean, it was like being in hell that first year. And so then the second year was better, but I managed to get myself thrown out of school. <laughs> That's right. It's a very interesting story how that happened. So we can, they can, uh, they can. It's R-rated, so they can buy the book. And, yeah, right. <laughs> but that got that got me to San Francisco. No other school would take me after that. Yeah. Little incident. And but the San Francisco Art Institute said, "Hey, listen, this you know, there's no big deal. Come on out here. You can study here. You can make films in San Francisco. We'd love to have you." So it was really a you know, if you got lemons, make lemonade. And mm. Really, really transformed my whole and the work that they were doing there was just you know really fascinating, really fantastic. And I was the the low man on the totem pole because I could technically print stuff that looked really good, mm. but I had nothing to say. You know. I was, and these other people were pushing the boundaries in all directions. We'd been in Pangasakan before, and we'd been in different villages, and, and we're kind of looking for a place to settle down. You know, we didn't want to live in a hotel or a guest house, or and we were living with families. We'd stay with families. Michael Weesey Productions was launched, to my understanding, it was launched in 1976, and I felt like it was primarily for your films. However, you had a book that you were trying to get published at that time called The Independent Film and Video Video Maker's Guide, but you were not able to find uh, you were not able to find a book someone to publish the book. So you chose to do it yourself through your production company, correct? Yeah, I'd been giving seminars in San Francisco on independent filmmaking because I was able to fortunately, you know, by luck or, or however, raise money for films and there were a lot of things I wanted to teach my fellow filmmakers that I'd experienced that they didn't know. So that the notes for that course became the book, The Independent Film and Video Maker's Guide. And nobody would publish it because there, was, there were no books on filmmaking. And so I got rejections all over the place. I got 15 rejections, I think. So I, I said, well, that's not going to stop me. So I found a local printer and uh, learned what was co- what's now called desktop publishing. It wasn't defined then. And I was one of the first to do it. And yeah. Pub- actually did an article about me and being one of the first to do it. I mean, I found myself being the first to do a lot of things. Yeah. Not not because I thought I was the first, but because I just ended up there. It's kind of like <laughs> Zelig or something. Yeah, right. I look around and you go, oh my God, what, you know. That became the first book, and I sold a lot of them, and I, it was ter- terribly produced and really poorly put together. And I made a lot of mistakes. Hmm. But I wrote a second, third, and fourth book, and that started the publishing company. Yeah, and then I realized I couldn't write on everything because I didn't know everything. So <laughs> so I found a couple of people and uh, nurtured them and and got them to do books for me. And so that's how the publishing company grew. And it's since become one, if not I believe the biggest publisher of filmmaking books. Oh, I, as I mentioned at the outset, over two hundred books, over seven hundred film courses around the world, and your books have been translated into eighteen languages. Um, very impressive indeed. And in 2013, 
you published your memoir. And this book is called Onward and Upward, Reflections of a Joyful Life. And to say that I love this book is is, is putting it mildly. Um, uh, it's it's uh, reading through this book. It's an amazing journey of really of someone as again as I mentioned early on, really who who is carving out their way and living and leading a doc life, which is what we talk about so often here. It's at the heart of what we talk about here on the program, and here it is in many ways in book form, reading someone's really journey with their with their doc life. My, my question for you, Michael, is why after 35 plus you know years of writing and publishing books, directing and producing doc films, did you decide to finally try your hand at writing your memoir? And, and why on earth didn't you do it sooner, man? <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment there. Well, I didn't think I had anything to say, for one. I didn't think that my, that my life was, was uh, spectacular or, or even worth uh, going over. And then... With my daughter, you know, sort of coming of age, I wanted to leave a legacy and give, you know, leave something that she could tap into. She felt like it. She's uh, studying to be a filmmaker. She's at the London Film School now. It was just a legacy. I wanted to believe what I'd learned, and I didn't want it. And the only thing I had to work with was my own experience. Mm. And so, it, you know, so I courageously, because it's a tough thing to do, put yourself out there yeah. every way. And I started to see patterns in in my life and started to see things that would be that other filmmakers or other people in general could use other artists or creative people who are struggling to sort it all out and it took quite a while to write i mean there are hundreds of little stories and little snippets that fit together into kind of a mosaic of a of a life and and there are through lines you know it kind of balances between an, an adventure story and and a book on how how to live as a, as a filmmaker we have the eyes of children and seeing the mysteries around us and knowing so little, yet somehow we still survive. It is here our journey begins. It's a, it's a very inspirational piece of work, and it's and it is that way throughout. It's it's humorous, it's thoughtful, it's mindful, it's spiritual, and that's. You know, I think you're underselling yourself here a little bit, Michael, in that, in reading this, is that you were someone that was constantly looking forward and trying to push boundaries, trying to understand your own life and how it was, and really how, trying to understand how you, uh, as a person, as a human being, and your work, how it's connected to, to, to the greater world. And that really starts to come through. Um, in your films, and obviously here, uh, in, in here in in the in the book onward and upward, you have a number of doc films to your name, whether as a producer, director, editor, or cinematographer. And we we don't have the time to talk about all of them here, you know, within this segment. But I do think it's worth noting um, a film that I recently came by. Uh, called The Sacred Sites of the Dalai Lamas. And it's interesting, Michael, because there's a little bit of a backstory back here um, or an anecdote. Uh, this this film was shared with me by an audio engineer and filmmaker himself by the name of uh, Bradford Rogers. And I met Bradford back in August at a conference in, uh, in Anaheim for... Uh, for uh, a podcast conference called Podcast Movement, and and Bradford and I hit it off pretty quickly, and have since become good friends. and And he's based down in, in Atlanta, Georgia, 
And he sent a DVD to me in the mail of this film, The Sacred Sites of the Dalai Lamas. And he prefaced it by saying, yeah, my friend Steve Dance, he's in this film and he did a bunch of the music for it. And I know the kind of films that you make, Chris, and, and what you're into. Um, it seems like the kind of a film you might be might, might be interested in, 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 in viewing. But interestingly enough, I sat on it for a long time um, and didn't watch it until, I don't know, about a month or so ago. And and then as I and and then as I watch it, I realize it's a Michael Weesey production. And then I realize, lo and behold, you have directed the film. And uh, at that point, um, it, it really solidified for me that yes, I need to have I need to have a conversation with Michael. And it's it's something I've actually wanted to to do for a long time. So um, I suppose in in some ways, I can thank Bradford and Steve Dance for connecting us. I'd always dreamt of traveling to Tibet. I remember being in elementary school when I first saw the Potala, the historical home of the Dalai Lamas. It struck a chord inside. The desire to travel to Tibet became stronger as I learned more about the Tibetans and their incredible passion to achieve a spiritual awareness called enlightenment. Let's talk a little bit about, about sacred sites of the, of the Dalai Lamas. I believe you went in 2005 with, with musician and composer Steve Dance, um, who had invited you on a pilgrimage to Tibet. And it seemed like the timing was right for you, Michael, as a filmmaker, uh, certainly in terms of, of what would become these, these kind of series of intimate and personal films that you would embark upon. In fact, I'm going to read here a little bit uh, from your memoir um, that kind of describes this. When I picked up the camera for Sacred Sites, I returned to a level of filmmaking and expression that was totally fulfilling. To shoot it, I had to empty my brain of everything and simply be, watching what unfolds in front of me like a cat staring at a mouse hole, waiting for the moment to turn on the camera. It was an awakening. It brought me back to the initial joy I had making films before I had to get a job. I did not realize it at the time, but The Sacred Sites is a direct continuation of Silver Box. Um, for my listeners, that's, an, that's a, a much earlier film. Another personal sacred journey. I make only one Hitchcock-style appearance in the entire Tibet film, but I wrote all of Steve's narration. It appears that it's his journey. Actually, it's both of our journeys, but I hide behind him. I am not yet the front man. This is still to come. The experience of making this simple one-man film reinvigorated my filmmaking. Of course, Geraldine, who is Michael's wife, she who knows all and sees all, had been telling me for years to make my little films and put the complex, actor-heavy Bolly Brothers movie aside, which was becoming watered down with each rewrite and moving further from my own experience. Sacred Sights plugged me back into spiritual filmmaking, where I held the camera, had the experience, and pass that along to the audience. This was the beginning of a creative breakthrough. And this is a bit of what I'd like to focus on now, Michael, is your journey with with really spiritual filmmaking. And I would like to hear from you, how was this the beginning for you of a creative breakthrough? Well, it, it threw me back and, and validated earlier works that I, that I had done and that had been uh, rejected or... Uh, as you get involved with this, you know, everybody wants, all young filmmakers want to um, get an Academy Award and make a million dollars. And just that thought alone takes you so far away from 
what it's all about, mm. that it's heartbreaking. And so I started with the, the Silver Box film was a, a look at my spiritual journey up to the age of 27 and places I traveled throughout the world and India and Japan and so on. And uh, it was pretty heavily negatively reviewed and I, I didn't show it for years because of that. And, yeah. and my life went on and I took various jobs and I got more and more in, into the industry and worked with you know, networks and, and uh, studios. That took me you know, more and more into the commercial world. What I produced had to make, a, make, make money and uh, so you couldn't make everything you wanted to make because most of the things I was interested in wouldn't make money. Right, right. And so when this opportunity came up with Steve, Steve had, had done some soundtracks for me when I was producing a series at PBS called Life Guides. And we hit it off, and he was a Buddhist, and I was into Buddhism as well. And he had previously invited me to a Dalai Lama a sacred music festival in India yeah. a few years earlier, and I didn't go. And Steve went and, and, and took a band, a jazz band with him, and it blew the Dalai Lama away. And the <laughs> Dalai Lama invited him for a two-hour audience. And I went, you know, that was really stupid. I didn't go because I had been a drummer, and I felt I wasn't drumming anymore, and I felt I wasn't up to the... I didn't want to be around musicians and be put in a, I was just uncomfortable. So, yes, so I, right, right. Yet I could have been with the Dalai Lama for a couple of hours. You know, it's like <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. So when Steve asked me if I wanted to go with him and Glenn Mullen, his uh, teacher, Buddhist teacher, uh, my wife is sitting next to me and I'm, I'm saying, he wants me to go to Tibet on this, uh, this uh, pilgrimage. And she just said, go. Because she saw what I went through, you know, uh, by not going the other time. So I went, and, and it was a breakthrough also in that I didn't know about uh, the history of the Dalai Lamas. I, I read Glenn's book, which is like 1,200 pages long, and wow. it's got covers 14, the lives of 14 Dalai Lamas, places we're going to go. And I was reading all that, and I was filling my brain with facts and information, and I was getting like constipated because it was like I couldn't <laughs> deal with all this stuff. And so when I went, I had to be very much in the present, and I thought, well, the only thing to do is to find a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. So I would get somewhere in some monastery and and clear my brain and see what emerged as a beginning. And know that if I picked a beginning, I would be committed to that beginning for the, the sequence. So I found the beginning. And then now, okay, now we're in the middle somewhere. And I've got to develop the you know, what, what what's going to be revealed here. What's the content? You know, what... And I sifted through all that, and now I thought, okay, it's time now. I'm feeling it. It's time to, you know, close it down and the ending and the conclusion. Mm. So I really trusted in that process where I was not interfering. I was kind of, it's kind of like holding on to those creatures in Avatar, and they, they take you where they're going to take you. So I, I approached each place that we went like that, and then strung it together like stringing beads together, and it actually worked. And then they had, it had overall structure to it as well. And there were, there's a lot of ways that the unconscious uh, informs your filmmaking and your choices. Mm -hmm. And so I just trusted and, and out it came. And it, it's very simple, but it's also very uh, powerful. Michael, how did this experience open up your approach to filmmaking in, in then future films after that? Well, I decided I would do other sacred journeys that I'm on various paths always have been always will be so i thought i would just do some of them and i i didn't i self-finance these and so these cost about fifteen thousand dollars each and i pretty much one man band films so i didn't i would i set up a situation where i didn't have to make a lot of money right to pay myself back 
I could sell a thousand, fifteen hundred DVDs yeah. and be even and, and get up and dust myself off and go and do it again. <laughs> exactly. So that was a self-sustaining model. My other models didn't didn't generally work. I mean, even though I was able to raise money and get it into distribution, it wouldn't necessarily return a profit. Hmm. So sometimes it did, but that was rare, and I always felt bad when the investors didn't get their money back in full. And yeah. So uh, I said, well, I'm going to do these. I'm going to self-publish the, these films in a very small scale, and they're going to be for a very small audience too because not everybody's going to be interested in, in the Dalai Lamas or, or anything that I do. So I, I could give up the commercial considerations to some degree, you know, having to have a star in it or having a, you know, a script approved or three script writers or, you know, these things tend to get out of, out of control. Yeah. So this was a scale that was manageable and self-sustainable. And so I did three, three or four films like that. There's a liberation there that occurs, and 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 to me, in watching your films, there's not only you know a personal liberation, but I can see as a doc filmmaker how, in a professional sense and a creative sense, this becomes a very uh, liberating exercise. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are listening to this podcast that can very much relate to that. Um, and I think it's a it's a it's a good thing to hear, and it's a lesson for all of us. Uh, starting out for people, you know, the, the ideal I think that we all have is, wouldn't it be cool if we could take our camera through our life and film all kinds of cool things that we were interested in, and learn about those things and teach other people about those things through our work? And maybe there's a way we could figure out how we can actually feed ourselves and have a family and mm. and you know go to places and maybe that maybe that could work. And so I've been trying to get that to work and. I have to a degree, and so it's, it's like I say to other people, it's, you may have to go out and get a, a job somewhere, a real job, part-time to support your documentary film or your family or, or whatever, but that's okay. Bucky, you know, Bucky Fuller was a cl- good friend of mine, and I was concerned about that and asked him. He said, no, you know, he's, he had to do jobs to support himself while he was, you know, inventing the geodesic dome and synergetic <laughs> mathematics. So I said, well, if Bucky is humble enough to, it's, it's keeping your eye on the prize, I think, as well. And, you know, so if you have to work nights to, to, so you can do something else during the day and do your filming during the day, then, then do it. It'll take you a little longer, but you'll, you'll get it done. You won't end up hanging out at Starbucks whining about how the world doesn't understand you. So well said, Michael. That's going to resonate with a lot of people. I, I can promise you that. Been in all these places, I know how frustrating it is. I know how you know debilitating it is. You know, to, to not be able to do your dreams or for people to reject you. So get over it and go do it. I have certainly felt a lot of common ground in reading your book between between um, in ways that you you live your doc life and how I have lived my doc life. And and certainly um, there are parallels in that you and I. Um, have traveled to a number of places on this planet. And I think that we have a very explorative mind and as really all do doc filmmakers. I've heard many times that, you know, people don't necessarily even refer to themselves as doc filmmakers as much as they do explorers. And I think that, that you and I tend to, to really like to explore our subjects, explore other cultures. And through that exploration, not only find out what the common ground is with ourselves and maybe that culture or the people of the culture, um, but try to cre- create a broader understanding of, of what our purpose is um, here on this planet in life and, and perhaps to be able to share that in a way with, with an audience that is, is um, 
looking to for greater connection as well. A lot of the work that I do, Michael, tends to be in developing countries in, in Southeast Asia, in countries that you yourself have, have done work in as well. And I feel like I have been culminating um, a, a culminating spirituality in my life in a way that certainly I wouldn't have if not having gone to gone to these countries and gone and experienced these cultures. Tell us, Michael, how spirituality is it's become a significant part of your own doc life and, and why it's important for you to explore these topics in your doc films. Well, it's I don't necessarily wear the spiritual label on my sleeve. Right. Maybe what maybe what would help understand that is when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I tell myself that I feel good. Even if I don't feel good, I feel good. And I try to clear my brain and my mindset and make a connection, a divine connection somehow, some way. And so I have different exercises I do. This this ties in with with uh, dealing with my Parkinson's too, which is another uh, kind of level of of it's, it's informing this filmmaking. But I try to it, it's set and setting. So I try to create a beautiful place to be in. Right now I'm in France, so I have a different room where I do this, you know, in home I can go outside in the garden, and here I've got to go out somewhere else. So I create that set, and then I try to, you know, open my mind as much as possible, empty it, and and live my day in that manner, mm. and let things inform me. In other words, let things reveal themselves to me because I'm open, as opposed to trying to, as opposed to the opposite of that, which is trying to push something into shape. I, I, I let it to, to come out. In other words. If we look at a cup, uh, we look at a cup the same way. And I say, hand me that cup, and you hand me the cup, and, and it's not a big deal for either one of us. If you take that cup and turn it upside down and put water on it or black paint on it or and, and twist it around, it's no longer a cup. It's something else, and it, it will teach you what it is. And uh, so, I, you know, in, in Tibet, I would not know the names of things. When you know the names of something, it kind of ruins it uh, because you quit, exp you quit exploring. Right. And so when I go into a Balinese trance stance or see somebody channeling the deities, I've got to not name it. If I leave it alone and try to see into it, I've become a much better filmmaker. Deep in the Amazon, in a remote region of Peru, there is a secret that has been handed down by generations of shamans. A secret that holds the key to a doorway to other worlds. Ayahuasca is a sacrament made from vines and leaves. It is said that when you drink it, you will be transported into other realms and introduced to beings whose mission seems to be to heal and teach us about the nature of reality. It's funny, in, in Peru, making one of the, the uh, ayahuasca films, Yes. Uh, I asked, I, I took the camera, we, we did it a ceremony during the day, or usually at night, and, which was great because you could see things. You didn't have to put on these uh, night vision, you know, green sniper goggles to get your shots. Mm. So you could see what was going on. And I asked ayahuasca, who, who will, it's a, it's a, it alters your consciousness and it, it is a plant medicine that will speak to you. So I asked the ayahuasca, you know, may I film this ceremony? And, and she said yes. And then she, she took over the director of photography role. <laughs> right. Would tell me when to shoot, and I would something would happen. She said, "You might want to get that. You might want to get that." And I'd shoot something else, and she says, "You're not going to need that." And I'd think, "Well, sure, well, it's pretty good." And it turned out that I just listened to her and did what she did. 
said, and it came out brilliantly. And that's what I mean by letting go to and allow something else to occur and trusting that and trusting ourselves. I think that filmmakers don't hold themselves or people in general don't hold themselves as, as high as they could. I mean, you know, we, we live on this little tiny part of the, the magnetic electromagnetic spectrum, but it goes in all directions and it goes into many realms and human beings are capable of, you know, seeing into the heavens and seeing into the, the inner space inside. I mean, it's a vast, vast space we live in, but we don't, but we don't experience that. And we don't live there. You know, we, we hold ourselves as very small and get involved with petty stuff that goes on in lo- our lives yeah. when there's a much bigger universe to explore. And I think that that comes in exploring ourselves and, and dealing with our own processes and our own value and our own um, uniqueness. I think that people don't have to worry about winning an Oscar or making a million dollars or getting their name in the newspaper even, or worry about whether they're fulfilling their purpose. I think the mere fact of living, each person is so unique, the, the mere purpose of living is all we have to do. We're like moon rovers and uh, you know, go collect samples from the moon and send them back. Well, each of us is doing that. We're processing in very different ways the world and worlds around us. I'll say that that certainly resonates it resonates with me, Michael, because for much of my filmmaking life, so I, I, I have predominantly worked in commercial and documentary, and the commercial is really what allows me to be able to, to you know, live this doc life. Um, though I've definitely been making um, big efforts in the past, you know, year or two, to really kind of shift that balance much more in favor in favor of of documentary and one of the things that i've struggled with in filmmaking michael is i have tended to really intellectualize the types of films that i want to do or a particular film project and so i will think that i have a great idea or i will come upon an idea that sounds like a great idea idea to pursue and then once i actually get in the thick of of the filmmaking process at some point things either you know i become a little bit less interested or i become a little bit bored or really just lost in what the direction of the film project it is and, and i've realized more and more it's because i've intellectualized um how great a project might be to do or that a lot of people might like to see this particular project as opposed to what you're doing now which is a much more connected approach of doing what feels right to you um, and exploring what feels right to explore to you and so you have a uh, this this connection i know that we keep using the word spiritual and maybe that's not the right word to use you know throughout this entire you know part of the conversation but but you have developed that type of a connection with yourself and your work in a way that defines the projects that you will work on that i very much envy and and i'm working um hard to get to all the time i definitely feel like i'm learning to get away from thinking so much and overthinking particular projects and trying to go with um, what sort of aligns with maybe maybe things like my values and my value system and what really at the end of the day feels right and feels like a connecting piece to me. Yeah, that's, that's the struggle we all go through. Yeah. And I think I like what the Balinese, uh, how, how they think of it. There's a word, it's, it's taksu, and it's, it's hard to define it, but it's you know, a performer has taksu, a politician can have taksu. What it means is that they are connected to the divine. They're in communication with the divine. They're receiving 
information and there's a connection there. But they need to then, through their artistry, through their dance, their technique, their musicianship, have to connect with the audience. And if they don't connect with the audience, they don't have taksu. Or if they don't, or if they're not in communication with the gods, they don't have taksu. I think that's a really cool model because you can, you can, you can also lose taksu and you can also find your taksu. So then you've got a channel to, uh, you know, turn on, turn on the creativity hose because you're gonna, mm. you're gonna be out of that intellectual zone and intellectualizing everything. Yeah. And into an experiential zone. And beliefs don't get you anywhere. You know, what's a belief? It's something that, or, or, or why doesn't belief work? Because belief isn't your own experience. You can't find your way around unless you base things on what you, you yourself have learned. Somebody else tells you something, it's believe in this or that. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't contribute to your journey. In 2007, Michael, you are diagnosed with a degenerative disorder of the central nervous system. You're diagnosed with Parkinson's. What was what was that initial realization like for you? I was like driving into a brick wall. It was uh, it was it was tough to you know realize that things may be curtailed in the future. But it's also been, as I say in the book and to other people who have Parkinson's, it's, it did me a big favor, a huge favor because. It sent me on a journey to figure out how to heal myself from Parkinson's. And I, I tried all kinds of different things. I feel like my body, I feel like a performance artist who uses his body to, you know, in, in experiments. And it, it took me to uh, ayahuasca, which is this Amazonian plant medicine. It's very powerful. It has changed my whole, not only addressed my Parkinson's, it turned my worldview entirely upside down. And that, it showed me my beliefs that didn't, weren't working. I was not uh, living in the here and now. I was living in the past or in the future, which is no place to live at all. And it showed me that everything is connected. And I mean, just a, a whole litany of, of positive things. And I, out of that, I created some more books and some more films. Oh. And uh, had I not had Parkinson's or have Parkinson's, I'm, I'm basically a healthy person with Parkinson's. What the, what the doctors tell you is they go, oh, gee, I got some news for you. I got some good news and bad news. Or what, what is it? He says, well, the good news is that it's a life sentence, not a death sentence. And you go, oh, and then you go home and you look at the uh, YouTube videos of people with Parkinson's and they're just degenerating and you know look terrible. You, you frighten you to death. Yeah, right. And you realize that you're buying into this guy, the doctor's story. Whereas if you create your own story and pursue your own experience, uh, you can relieve yourself of many of the symptoms. Mm. And so I I found somebody who helped me with this, an Israeli martial artist. And we, we did a film and a book with him, too. So mm. it's like whatever I, whatever I stumble into, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, I, I end up making a film about it or a book about it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's what's, that's what's so when I'm dealing with it and... All is cool, and I, I'm, I'm not moving as fast as I did before, but I'm still standing and tend to yeah. keep documentary life. I would like to hear how maybe, maybe the mindfulness that you've learned over the years, how that perhaps translates into into filmmaking now for you, because maybe you can share with us um, in, in a way that can help us with our approach to our own filmmaking. Yeah, I think you know it's a very simple thing to do is to. It's the set and setting thing again. It's to sit in a meditative position and sit there for, commit to sit there for five or 10 minutes or half an hour, it doesn't matter, you know, 
and just allow all the thoughts to go away and just feel what that space is like. And, and don't judge it as being a good space or bad space. or It's just a space. And then when you do your filmmaking, before you go shoot, if you're doing an interview or whatever, go, go sit and, and, and find that space again and take it with you into your filmmaking. And be respectful and be in Bali, before we filmed, we went to the priests and we said, we're doing this project and you know, we'd like you to bless the project. Right, and right. So we do this whole ceremony around and bless the camera and throw holy water from the volcano on the, you know, on the, on the lens. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and then you're working out, you're, you're drawing in other, you're drawing in help. And we, we ask in, uh, in Peru, you know, we, we had this, you got to let the spirits know what you're doing, how long you're going to be there and, and what you hope to obtain and you ask for their help. And they'll show up. So, you know, a lot of what we, I feel myself stumbling around today in this interview. And that's because so much of what I want to share is unspeakable. Right. Language, language isn't big enough to cover it. And so I'm hemming and hawing and grasping at the words and sometimes throwing the wrong words out. So I want you to get this as a transmission and as a feeling from me to you and from you to your listeners, uh, rather than the literal or the transcript of what I've said. Yeah, yeah. It, it ain't in the transcript. And so if we can work out of that space, we, we see a lot more. David Lynch uh, has been teaching meditation, and I heard the story that he tells his, his students not to uh, go for the little fish, wait for the big ones. And so meditate and sink down, and you know the little ones go by, and they may be good ideas. But if I sit there for long enough, and or it's not even a time factor. If I sit there with the right intentions, I get all kinds of ideas for films and titles of things and concepts and things that can go together. And if I I used to have to come up with program ideas when I was working in video, this big video company, and I would ask that whenever I went out to my car and and opened the, the car door, that my unconscious will give me a an idea that I can think about on my way, drive to work. Uh, right. And so I had good ideas every day, at least at least one that I could present to the to the group and get made. My job was to develop a lot of. I did 200, 300 videos, and you know, I needed to come up with stuff. And it's all available. It's just uh, so much that uh, it's, it's it's endless. I, I could continue this conversation with you for hours, but uh, we don't we don't have hours, unfortunately. Uh, I've been speaking with Michael Weesey. He is the author of his memoir, Onward and Upward, Reflections of a Joyful Life. He also has, is the director or producer of over, over 10 uh, documentary films. And he is the owner and founder of Michael Weesey Productions. And the publishing company involved with, with Michael Weesey Productions has published over 200 film books worldwide. Michael, any final words that you can impart to our doc filmmaking audience that, uh, that you might like to, to leave us with? I have a word and a half to leave you with. Go get them. Michael, thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life and in many ways sharing your own doc life and journey with us. Again, for anyone interested in further exploring more about really much, much, much more in depth about what we've been talking about today, Go to go to Michael Weesey Productions, uh, his website, which is mwp.com. Um, and a, a list of a number of the books that they publish, of course, are there. Michael's films are also there. Um, and I'm going to put uh, 
put uh, I'll go ahead and put links to all of what we've talked about here in the program. I'm going to put links to these up in our show notes, including a, a link to his book, um, Onward and Upward Reflections of a Joyful Life. Michael Weesey, what an honor. Thank you so much for being on the documentary Life Today. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, congratulations and thanks for including me in it. I felt very good about this interview and that's because of your passion and your insight and this is a journey, you're taking a parallel journey. You know, we, we are, have had very similar arcs or curves and journeys. Mm. And so it makes it easier to do and, and deeper for me when somebody really gets your work. Mm. Absolutely, Michael. Um, and we will be in touch. To be continued. Thank you. Bye, Chris. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.